Uh, where, where are all the, the kids at today? Can you guys go ahead and raise your hands? All right. Uh, for those of you that are new at BC, um, twice a month we do uh, service with kids in here. And uh, at the beginning of the sermon, there's a, a, a part where we're, we're trying to communicate and teach the Bible just to kids. Um, but we're also trying to communicate and teach the Bible to grown-ups in an easier-to-understand way. Um, and then the rest of the time, the other two weeks out of each month, we have this thing called Kids Connect, which is in another room where the kids go and they memorize scripture together, they talk about the Bible together, they, they have fun together, and they kind of learn what it's like to participate in the body of Christ. And so today's one of the Sundays where kids are in here, and kids, I need your help to, uh, we're going to talk about a word this morning, which is right here. Who, who can tell me what this word is? Gospel. Awesome. Now, who can tell me what this word means? First of all, I'm encouraged by the hands. Uh, what do you think, Dinah? What? The Bible. The gospel is in the Bible, but the gospel doesn't equal the Bible. What do you think, Noah? Good news. So like any good news? So like you're watching TV and there's a story on, it's good news, like that's gospel? The good news. What is the good news? What do you think, Landon? God's word. The gospel, again, it's in God's word, and it is God's word, but what's the good news about? What do you think, Zaley? Jesus. The gospel is the good news about who Jesus is and what he does. So here's my next question. All right, that's what the gospel is. Is the gospel, we've already established that it's in the Bible, right? This, this book. Is it in the, the whole Bible? Like the Old Testament and the New Testament? What do you guys think? Ooh. Yes and no. What do you guys think? Yes? Yes? Who thinks, yes, it's in the whole Bible? Who thinks, no, it's not in the whole Bible? Okay. The people that said no, you guys are wrong. The gospel, and, and first of all, don't feel bad. Like most of my life, I thought the gospel's just in the New Testament. The Old Testament is all this old boring stuff that we don't know anything about. But really, the whole Bible from beginning to end, from cover to cover, it tells the story of Jesus, of who he is and what he's done. It tells us the good news. And that's important because today we're going to be reading Isaiah, and in Isaiah, he's going to tell us good news. He's going to tell the people good news that God is going to come and save them, and he's going to restore their relationship with them. He's going to forgive their sin. And that is just like the gospel that we get in the New Testament. Um, but before we move on, I have one more question for you. All right, if the gospel is good news, what do you think the bad news is? God died. That's, that's part of the gospel, though, right? That's part of the good news, that Jesus died to save us from our sins. So what's the bad news? What do you think? Hell. Hell is absolutely part of the bad news, right? Mr. Chris was up here talking about that earlier. People who don't know Jesus are going to die and go to hell. Why are they going to die and go to hell? Because of what? What do you think? Way in the back. Yeah, all right. That happens to me, too. What do you think, Matthias? Because of sin, right? Because we're, is anybody in here perfect? Do you guys always obey your mom and dad all the time? Yes? No, no right? 
Nobody's perfect. We all, we all sin. We all fall, fall short. The Bible says that everyone has, fallen, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means all of us, as apart from Jesus, will go to hell. That's, that's bad news, right? Right? Isn't that bad news? That everybody that dies without Jesus goes to hell. That's really bad news. That's why the gospel is such good news. Because it comes into that situation and says, hey, there's another way. You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to be enslaved to sin. You don't have to die. Instead, there's someone, God, who came into this world and lived the life you couldn't live and died in your place so that you can have salvation. That's good news, right? That's great news. And so what we're going to see in our our passage today in Isaiah is that the gospel, it's not just a New Testament thing. It's a whole Bible thing. And so kids... I would encourage you to go home and ask your parents more about this good news. Ask them about how they trust in it. Ask them about how they see it uh, in God's Bible, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament too. Ask them what they learned about the gospel from today's passage. So let's pray, and then we'll move on in the Word this morning. Father, we thank you that you are the greatest storyteller ever. And that in your word, you present the greatest story ever told. That from cover to cover, page after page, you are telling us the good news of who your son is and what he's done for us and how he is the only answer and every answer to the bad news in this world. God, I ask that you would help us today to... to understand more of what your son has done for us. That in an Old Testament passage, in the middle of the book of Isaiah, that you would increase our our understanding of and our appreciation for what Jesus has done for us. And that that we would celebrate the salvation that that we get to live in. And and the gospel that, that we get to foolishly take for granted that as we uh, try to think about this good news from the perspective of people that don't have the New Testament, that you would push us um, to worship you and, and push us to obey and serve you by telling others this amazing and miraculous good news that's been told to us. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today we are we are turning uh, the corner in the book of Isaiah, and it's a really, really, really good corner to turn because we're moving from the first half of the book of Isaiah, which is like judgment, 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 judgment for thirty nine chapters to good news to comfort and restoration and and God kind of bringing his people back. And so this is a a really important chapter in the book of Isaiah because it it makes that shift for us. But because it's such a dramatic shift, um, it's almost like it's two separate books. In fact, there's a whole lot of people out there that'll be like, "This, this, this wasn't written by Isaiah. There's like an Isaiah who wrote the first half, and then there's somebody else who wrote the second half. Because these books are too different, they can't possibly be written by the same person. But 
what's happening in Isaiah's life kind of helps us understand what's, what's taking place and why uh, the first half of Isaiah and the second half of the book of Isaiah are so dramatically different. So this is what's going on in his life. Um, the last passage we read in the book of Isaiah last week, Isaiah 38 and 39, it happens around uh, 712 B.C. So it's, it's happening, and at that point of his life, Isaiah learns that Babylon is going to come and they're going to invade Judah and Jerusalem and they're going to carry the people off into exile. So he gets that really, really bad news. That's what's going to happen. But then something else is going on. Then Assyria is going to come and invade. So for, for most of his life, Isaiah has this news. He knows Babylon's going to come, but that's not what he talks about. Instead, he's talking about Assyria because Assyria are the ones who come and invade. And that's what happens in chapter 37. Chapter 37 happens around 701 BC, so about uh, 11 or 12 years later. So he knows Babylon's coming, but instead Assyria is coming first. So that's what he's focusing on. That's what he's preaching about. That's what his ministry is all about. And that's why Isaiah 1 through uh, 39 is, is mostly all about judgment. So chapter 37, when he's, uh, he's interacting with Assyria, what, what's, what's happening there is, is he is around 72 years old. So Isaiah is an old guy, right? Especially at this time, he's almost at the end of his life. This is it's kind, of, kind of a guess that he's around that age. He was probably 30 years old when he got called to ministry. That was when uh, Uzziah died in, in 740. So just kind of guessing that he was around that age, we know that he was probably 72, maybe you know a few years younger, a few years older. Either way, he's an old guy. So he's towards the end of his life. Hezekiah dies three years after chapter 37. The reason why that matters is because the guy who reigns after Hezekiah is Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. Manasseh takes the throne at 12 years old. So just imagine any 12-year-old you know ruling a country. It doesn't go well, right? And and 12-year-olds back then were probably a little better prepared than 12-year-olds now, but still, it goes very poorly. I want to read to you from from 2 Kings 21 that that kind of paints the picture of this dramatic shift in the nation that happens from Hezekiah to Manasseh. It's also going to be on the slides if if you don't want to turn in your Bibles. This is what it says. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he created uh, altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Israel will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever." And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander out of the land as I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. 
So Manasseh is a bad king. He's a bad leader. He leads the people to do the very thing that God said, don't do, right? He puts altars to foreign gods in the temple, in the place that he said, hey, here, I'm going to dwell with you. And if you do what I say and keep my covenant, if you keep the covenant we made together, then you're going to live long in the land. If you don't, I'm going to send another nation and they're going to take you out of the land. That's exactly what Manasseh does. And that's exactly what happens because of this dramatic shift from Hezekiah to Manasseh, the way Isaiah has to minister into in the rest of his life is completely different than the first half. With Hezekiah, he has a relationship, right? He goes to him. He gives him the word of the Lord. With Manasseh, he doesn't. And so most of his ministry in the later years of his life isn't public. Uh, what does happen sometime during Manasseh's reign is that Manasseh kills Isaiah. Uh, Jewish tradition tells us that Manasseh had Isaiah sawn in, in two with a, with, a, with a saw. And if you go and you read Hebrews chapter 11 in the, in the hall of faith there, they go through a kind of a list of unknown people at the end. And one of those unknown people is sawn in two. And a lot of people think that he's referring to what happened to Isaiah. So Manasseh is a, is a bad king and he changes Isaiah's ministry. And because of that, the people don't listen anymore. And so instead of Isaiah focusing on the present situation and talking to the people about what they need to do now, instead he begins to preach a message that they're going to need after Babylon comes and exiles the people away. And so the focus of the next, uh, the second half of the book of Isaiah is all about giving the people the comfort and the good news that they're going to need after the judgment happens. So in this passage today that we're going to read, we get, we get three things. The first thing we get is we get Isaiah kind of getting a new ministry. He gets recommissioned. He was commissioned back in Isaiah 6, and then in Isaiah 40, he gets kind of a new a new mission. Then he's going to get his message. His message is now going to be one of good news instead of bad news. And the other thing we get in these 11 verses is kind of a big introduction to the rest of Isaiah. So the themes that come up in, in this section are going to kind of be woven throughout the rest of the book. So let's read Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. He says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see, shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is like grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So again, in this, these 11 verses, we get three things. 
we get Isaiah's new commission, we get his new message, and then we get kind of this intro to the rest of the book of Isaiah. We're not really going to talk about that, just know that what he's talking about, he's going to keep talking about. But the first two things, we're going to talk about them, his, his new mission and his new message. So the first is his mission. So this is him kind of being uh, kind of commanded or commissioned again. In the first verse, first two verses, we get three commands. The first one is comfort. The second one is speak tenderly. And the third one is to, to cry. And here it's like cry out, like proclaim, not like boo-hoo, cry. So three commands, uh, comfort, speak tenderly, and cry out. So these commands just kind of go out, but they just kind of go out generically. It's not really sure who they go out to yet. And then uh, in verse 3, there's another voice that cries out, but we still don't know who it is that's crying out. It's not until we get to verse 6 where again, the voice says, cry. It's another command going out. And then Isaiah answers the call. He says, and I said, what shall I cry? So he's asking, what is the message that you want me to speak? I'm going to obey these commands. What is it that you want me to do? So his message or his new commission is to, to comfort, to speak tenderly and to cry out. And, and what he cries out is this good news message. In verse nine, he's called a, a herald of good news. This is important because when the book of Isaiah is translated into Greek later on, right? this word, this phrase right here, herald of good news, is the same word that's picked up later by the New Testament authors to talk about the preaching of the gospel. So what Isaiah is being commissioned to do here is to preach gospel, to preach good news. And so you might wonder, like, well, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Why does it matter that it was translated into Greek? It matters because when the New Testament authors wrote what they wrote, they used the Old Testament in Greek as kind of a place to get the words that they used. So, uh, I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine because for us, the word gospel has just kind of always been out there. But at some point, it, it wasn't. Right? It's just like any, any new field, uh, like the word tweet. There was one time where tweet in history meant the noise a bird makes. And then Twitter came along, and then tweet got applied to that, and then now when we hear the word tweet, we probably don't think bird. We think, what has the president said now? Here, that's what's happening with the word gospel. It's taking on a technical meaning, and then later it's going to be used by the New Testament authors as good news, the good news of Jesus, which we're going to see later is really close to the good news that Isaiah preaches here. So he's commissioned to preach the gospel, and it's important for us to recognize how different this is from his earlier commission. So real quick, I want to read Isaiah 6 to you. This is his first commission. This is what God tells him to do the first time. He says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So a question kind of goes out, and he says, here am I. Send me, and he said, this is what he's told to do, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. 
So Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, is told to, to go out and be successful at not being successful. Right? He's to be, be boring and dull and confusing and depressing so that no one wants to listen to him, so that no one does what he says. And he says, how long do I have to do this? And God says, until pretty much everything is destroyed. The only thing that's going to be left is this stump that's been cut down and burned. Now, in Isaiah 40, he's given this new commission where he gets to go out and he gets to preach good news to that stump that's left over. He's told to provide words of comfort and tenderness uh, and uh, the, the new reality that's going to happen after the people come back from exile. He's preaching this message of restoration that they're going to need after the judgment has fallen. So his first commission is judgment. His second commission is comfort and good news. Now, let's look at this good news message. There's, there's four truths in these 11 verses that he's to preach. The first is that they're still God's people. The second is that their sins have been forgiven. The third is that they're going to be restored to the land and restored in their relationship with God. And the fourth is that God's promises are trustworthy and true. These are the four things, the four kind of pillars of this message that he's called to go out and preach. So the first one is in verse 11, and it's reiterated again in verse 1. That's that they are still his people. So God says, comfort, comfort my people. And then in verse 11, he says that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So he's telling them that they're still his people. And we might hear that and we might think, well, like, what's, what's the big, big, big deal? You know, of course, Israel are God's people. Like, how, how would they not know that at this point? Well, they wouldn't know it because of what God had just done to them. Right? God sent a foreign nation into their land to destroy the vast majority of it and kill a whole lot of people. And then, for those that are left, he sends another army to their land to enslave them and carry them off into a foreign land. So, they absolutely would have wondered, is he still our God? Does he still care about us? Or is our relationship with him over? And I get that that's hard for us to understand. But this, this song that we just sang, House of God Forever. God is my shepherd, I won't be wanting. He makes me rest in fields of green with quiet streams. Even though I walk through the valley of death and dying, I will not fear because you are with me. You are with me. What would it be like if, if we couldn't sing those words? Right? If, if we played that song and, and had absolutely zero reason to hope that they were true. I don't mean like a little bit of doubt. Like I'm going through a tough time. Is God really with me? I mean like, I don't know if he's my God anymore. That's where these people were. That's what they would have thought after the exile. That's what they would have wondered when judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment was falling on them and their family and their friends and their land. And so when God recommissions Isaiah to go out and preach this good news and give comfort to God's people and to tell them that they are still his people, they absolutely would have been amazingly thankful and grateful for this good news that they've been given. 
Because he's answering that question that they would have had all along. Is he still our God? And Isaiah comes along and says, absolutely he is. He's going to lead you like a shepherd leads his flock. He's going to bring you back to the land. So the first bit of good news is they're still his people. The second bit of good news is even better. It's that their sins are forgiven. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So he tells them that their struggle is over. Their sins are forgiven and that they have been paid for. Now, try not to hear that with with your New Testament brain, right? With your gospel-informed mind. Because we hear that and we think, well, yeah, their sins are forgiven. Because of, because of Jesus. Their sins are paid for because he paid for them. But imagine that you don't know any of that. And you're in this situation where this judgment has just fallen. You've been exiled to a foreign land and someone comes along and they say, hey, God still loves you. He still wants a relationship with you. You're still his people and he's forgiven all your sins. They've been paid for. How would you respond to that? Think of two ways. The first would be, that's amazing. Thank God my sins are forgiven and he's not going to keep punishing me. Because this punishment that we've been going through as a people, it's not pleasant at all. And then the second response would be, wait. How have my sins been forgiven? Were, were there sacrifices offered? Where were the sacrifices offered? The the temple doesn't exist anymore. When we were leaving Jerusalem, I saw that it was torn down. So how, how is it possible that my sins have been forgiven? Isaiah doesn't answer that question. He's going to later. But for now, it's just the good news that their sins have been forgiven. And he leaves it at that. We want that answer. We want the theology that backs up the good news. But God wants to comfort his people with the good news and them just to celebrate the fact that he's done it. So the first good news is that they're still his people. Next, he tells them that their sins have been forgiven. And third, he's going to tell them that he's going to bring them back to the land and restore their relationship with him. He says this in verses 3 through 5. There's this voice that cries out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is so that God can bring his people back to the land on this highway. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's basically saying, I'm going to create a way for you to get back to your land with me that, that, that will absolutely be successful. Right? Any potential barrier in your way is going to be smoothed out by me. And then at the very end, as if that wasn't enough, he says that the word of the Lord has spoken, meaning it's not dependent upon them. It's not dependent upon Isaiah and his message. It's God's word, and they can trust in that. So he's telling them that they're still in a relationship with him. Their sins have been forgiven. He's going to bring them back to the land and restore them there. And it's absolutely going to be successful, and no one's going to oppose it. And then he reminds them that, His word stands forever. He does this in verses 6 through 8. After Isaiah is commissioned, he asks, what do I cry? And this is the answer. 
All flesh is like grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is how they can trust in that good news. Because it's going to last. The grass is going to wither. The flowers are going to die. People are going to die. But God's word is going to be established forever. So because of that, because his word stands firm, they can trust in his promises. They can trust in this good news. They can put their hope in it because it's going to last. It's not going to end. And I think that when we, when we think about trusting in good news um, and, and putting our hope in this, I think we need to remember that the Bible is God's word, right? It's, it's not just a book. It's not just some like inanimate object that like sits on a desk or a counter or a shelf and is just kind of there until we interact with it and then it becomes this significant thing. It's, it's a, a, a word, a, a message that comes in the context of a relationship. So, there was a time when me and some friends were having dinner at Red Robin. And while we were there, uh, we had a waiter who was kind of strange. And as he was interacting with us, he took our order. And as he's backing away from the table, he says, kind of under his breath, I love you guys. And it was so strange and so weird that like we had a conversation for probably five minutes about whether that's really what he said. And like two of us were convinced, like he absolutely said that. One of us was like, he couldn't possibly have said that. He must have said something else. What could he have said instead? But that's what he said. And the reason why that's so weird is because that's usually something that you say to someone in the context of a relationship. Like, that's what gives it its meaning. That's what gives it its significance. That's what causes us to think, yeah, they really said that. They said that because we have a relationship where we love each other. Of course that's what they said. When we think about God's word, the reason why we trust in it, the reason why we believe that his promises are true, is because it's not just a book. It's the word of a personal God. And his words to us come in the context of a relationship we have with him. And the relationship we have with him is one in which he keeps his promises to us. And so when Isaiah says things like the word of the Lord stands forever, we believe that and we can put our hope in that and faith in that because we've seen him keep his word to us. And we can look back on the Old Testament and see God keep his promises to these people that these promises were given to. He did bring them back to the land. He did remain in a relationship with them. He did forgive their sins. He did restore them in the land. And he smoothed out all the rough places so that when people came and they opposed the building of the temple, God caused the temple to be built. And when they opposed the building of the walls, he caused the walls to be built. Uh, He caused the king of Babylon to bring the people back to the land and foot the bill for a lot of the rebuilding that they did. He kept his promises to them. So this good news that they still have a relationship with him, their sins are forgiven, they're going to be restored in the land, that God is going to keep his promises and his word is going to endure, is this message that Isaiah is entrusted with. It's Isaiah's gospel. It's the gospel according to Isaiah. And really, it's not much different than what we get in the New Testament. It, it 
looks forward to. It points to the gospel that's coming, where we get the understanding of how our sins can be forgiven and how we can be brought back into relationship with God, about how we can be uh, brought back into his presence. Right? It answers all of those questions in a way that Isaiah's good news doesn't. But that doesn't make his good news any less good. Because it's telling these people that salvation is possible for them. And that God isn't going to, to oppose them forever. One more thing about this passage that I think is really, really important is that these, these three commands that God gives to Isaiah at the very beginning, uh, comfort, speak tenderly, cry out. These commands are, are plural. So they're not just addressed to one person. They just kind of go out to, to everyone that hears the message. I think the reason why that is is because, because the good news of the gospel or, or good news that's, that's like the gospel, it comes with its own commission, right? When you hear good news, like, you should share it. You, you want to share it. And so this, this call, this commissioning, it's not just for Isaiah. It's for everybody that hears the news. As Isaiah is out kind of preaching this message, as he's, he's writing it down so that it can be delivered to these people after the exile, it's a message that's not just for him, it's for everyone. In the same way that what Christ has done for us isn't just a message for us. It's not just good news for us so that we can hear the good news and say, that's great news. It's so that we can hear the good news and then become heralds of the good news to other people. That news commissions us to share it. And if we're not doing that, it's either because we don't think the news is good or it's because we're disobedient. And so I think we should do two things. The first is we should repent. I mean, I I don't like that. Right? I want to think, even though I know that it's not true, that I'm obedient most of the time. I don't want to think about my failure, even as someone who, you know, gets paid to preach, to preach the gospel. I don't want to think about situations in which I really felt like the Spirit was prompting me to share the gospel, and I didn't because, you know, I was more concerned about what somebody thought of me than what God thinks of me. I don't want to think about the time when, you know, I just kind of crush down the emotion about knowing someone's going to hell instead of sharing the good news with them that they don't have to. Right? We should be compelled to share the gospel with people. We shouldn't have to work hard at it. We shouldn't have to try to do it. We shouldn't have to force ourselves to obey. And I'm not saying this to, you know, to make you feel guilty or to make me feel guilty but instead to encourage you to spend time thinking about the realities of the goodness of the gospel so that you don't have to work at it, but so that instead it just flows out of you because you know how good it is and how it is the answer to the bad news that's in the world, and you can't help but share it with people. But even if you don't get there, do it anyway. Right, the, the goodness of the good news, it's about the message, not about the messenger. 
So even if we're not like overflowing with emotion when we share the gospel, simply opening our mouths and sharing it in a monotone, slightly convoluted way is better than not doing it at all. We today get to celebrate the Lord's Supper knowing that God kept his promise to these people in Isaiah. We get to celebrate it knowing that he does restore relationship with his people. He does keep us as his people. He does forgive our sins. They have been pardoned. They have been paid for. Right? We know that the Lord's Supper represents that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us, that our God came here to save us and to bring us back into relationship with him. We get to celebrate and know and cling to things that the people that received this message in Isaiah could only dream about. Right? They could only kind of theorize about how God paid for their sins and forgiven them. We can look to Jesus. And so as you celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you to, to spend time thinking about the goodness of the good news that you get to believe in that so many other people don't get to. And that would cause you to marvel and wonder at the goodness of our God and that it would motivate you outwardly in obedience to to share that good news with other people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can have a relationship with you and that your word comes to us in the context of that relationship. That we don't have to wonder about whether you love us and care for us, but that we only have to look to the Lord's Supper as a reminder of what you have done to show that you love us, to show that you want a relationship with us, to show that you have forgiven our sins. We thank you that we can know what love is because of what Christ has done for us. God, I thank you that the Bible is a story of good news. I thank you that you recommissioned Isaiah to preach it. I pray today that you would help us by your spirit to celebrate it well and to be faithful to proclaim it to others. It's in your name we pray. Amen.